Hi, Sarah. Hi, Josh. Welcome to episode 12, episode 12 of Descent Magazine's Belabored Podcast. We appreciate you sticking around this long, and if you're just joining us for the first time, um, I think we hope we'll go back to some of our back issues. Anyway, um, this week, as we always do, we start off with a little bit of uh, what's happening in labor. It's been sort of a big news week for things non-labor, um, so I suppose we're just we should acknowledge a lot of things that happened this week in the Supreme Court, in Texas, um, things that are both good and bad for democracy, but... Right now, I'm going to bring you a little news from New York from um, the legal services workers that I've mentioned a couple of times on the show before. After nearly six weeks on strike, their strike is over and they are calling it a victory. They have successfully defended their health care and retirement benefits, won some new terms that will hopefully protect them against future layoffs, agreed to maintain their current salary scale, so no cuts at least, and um, have increased a little bit their salary contribution to their healthcare premiums. So, I mean, this is a strike, once again, I've mentioned, of workers who, um, they help people who are otherwise quite often left behind by our legal system. So they provide support for people facing foreclosure and people facing eviction um, for immigration cases, uh, free of charge to anyone in New York who needs it. And I think I've mentioned the last time I talked about this, it's really important when we're talking about workers who do this kind of support work, um, public service work, that the way we treat these workers is indicative of how we think about the people that they serve. Um, The fact that these workers manage to stand up for themselves to successfully, I think, define the debate and not allow it to be seen as that they were slacking and not doing their jobs by going on strike, that they demanded the respect and, and actual pay and benefits that they deserved. Um, I think that's impressive, and there are probably some lessons in this strike, and um, maybe we'll talk about it some more in the future. For now, congratulations, guys, for uh, ending your strike successfully. So speaking of strikes, this was in some sense the week that the other shoe dropped that many people were waiting for in the current labor effort against Walmart. We have seen since 2011, when the United Food and Commercial Workers Union backed non-union alt-labor group, our Walmart emerged and started pushing for changes in pay, in benefits, in respect on the job. Many have wondered whether the empire would strike back in a very dramatic way, in the way that we saw in 2005 when Walmart shut down an entire store in Canada after workers won collective bargaining rights in the way we saw in 2000 when Walmart eliminated an entire department in the United States because about a dozen workers had decided that they wanted to be union meat cutters. Up until May, we saw over 150 allegations of various forms of retaliation and intimidation, but we had not seen anything on the level in this campaign of what we had seen historically in terms of the drama and the severity of the allegations What we've seen now is Walmart, in the period between this past Friday and Tuesday, Walmart has allegedly disciplined at least 35 workers who went on strike this month. That includes 10 firings that took place starting Friday. Total 12 of the workers who went on strike this month have been fired. At this point, most of those 35, and by the time you listen to this, it may be more, most of those 35 workers 
are workers who not only went on strike this month, but were part of the hundred some who traveled to Arkansas, as we discussed on this podcast, to protest at the company's shareholder meeting. And so for dozens out of a hundred some workers who went to Arkansas to face some kind of discipline when they come back is a very dramatic gauntlet being thrown down by the company. In my requests for comment, Walmart has denied that it's broken the law, has said that it did not single out workers who participated in, in these strikes for discipline as compared to other workers who missed shifts. But one of the things that's interesting about Walmart's response here is they are not denying that not being at work during the strike was something that they disciplined some people for. And so Walmart is directly rejecting the idea, it appears, that these strikes were protected work stoppages. Instead, the company referred to them as hit-and-run actions backed by the United Food and Commercial Workers Union. So this is a major escalation in this struggle. It poses a major challenge for these workers who've been organizing in the question of how they make this something that deepens their community support and most of all their support in the workplace, something that does not chill or shut down incipient organizing in the places where workers have not yet gotten into the organization that doesn't drive workers out of the organization. And as I reported at The Nation, we've seen the beginning of a response. In one case, at least, there was a delegation where a group of supporters went to a store where two workers were fired to talk to management. More of that is expected. The most dramatic action so far, I reported on and shot video of while I was in the Bay Area, this was outside San Jose at the headquarters of Yahoo, where about 30 people went and demanded a meeting with Marissa Meyer, who's on the board of Walmart, Marissa Meyer, the CEO of Yahoo. Five people were arrested in civil disobedience there. This is a major turning point in one direction or another for the campaign. I've noted before that strikes in this campaign, as in others, like the fast food effort, strikes both are an invitation in some sense to illegal retaliation, and at the same time the strongest weapon that these workers have for punishing that retaliation and for highlighting it and for making it something that companies pay for. And so the question of whether this is something that snuffs out some of the organizing or something that ultimately the organization is able, as workers have pledged, to put Walmart in a more vulnerable position to build more support against Walmart is something that remains to be seen. Well, from strikes and other actions to a different kind of workplace action, I've been following the New York State Nurses Association. Um, I met or first spoke to some of these nurses doing when they were doing volunteer work after Hurricane Sandy, but in recent months, they've been concentrating, many of them, on a fight to keep a couple of hospitals here in Brooklyn open. Um, this is in a city, again, as I mentioned, right after Hurricane Sandy, we had hospitals that were closed for weeks and months. Um, this is a city that has large portions of it that are already underserved when it comes to healthcare services. And so the this nurses union had a reform movement takeover in 2011, and they have been doing community organizing and all sorts of community work, trying to keep open, specifically in this case, we were talking about the Long Island College Hospital, 
they've actually won legal battles in court, a court injunction keeping the hospital open. But the people who run the hospital, who are um, at SUNY Downstate, they seem to be determined to close it anyway. So we've seen in the last week, they've been diverting ambulances away, which is in direct violation of the judge's order. They've been transferring patients out. One nurse told me that she had a patient transferred out while she was on her break. She came back and her patient was on a stretcher ready to be moved. All of this, again, that is in seemingly direct violation of the judge's order to keep the hospital open and keep it fully staffed. Um, So in addition to the legal action, the nurses have been holding rallies. They had a health fair outside the hospital last weekend, providing free health screenings to the community. They're doing outreach. They're also involved also in the lawsuit is 1199 SEIU's um, healthcare local. And this is one of those moments. It reminds me somewhat of the Chicago Teachers Union's fight to keep schools open, that this is one of those moments where the union can really show the community that they are there to support them. Um, nurses are a high demand job. These nurses have been getting phone calls asking them to come work other places. People have been calling the hospital, trying to lure them away. They're not just fighting to save their paychecks. They're really fighting to keep open a hospital in communities that in some cases, really desperately need the care. Um, So I will most definitely be following this story as it goes forward, um, and we'll certainly have much more on the New York State Nurses Association in the future. Finally, as we close the roundup, we should note that, of course, many of the top headlines in national news this week also have tremendous labor implications, which we may come to in the future on this podcast. The last story I want to highlight is legislation introduced by Congressman Alan Grayson, a Democrat from Florida. In an interview I did for The Nation with Grayson, he announced a bill that would really dramatically transform what avenues are available to workers when they get retaliated against for activism on the job. As compared to the Employee Free Choice Act, Grayson's bill is focused more specifically, more narrowly on the issue of retaliation, but it would do much more on that issue than EFCA would have, whereas EFCA only would have increased the damages that could be paid out by companies for retaliating. This bill would create a private right of action, the right for workers to go around or separate from the National Labor Relations Board process, whose issues and deficiencies we often talk about here, and would allow workers to go straight into court to sue over being retaliated against. It would, perhaps more significantly, allow them to sue not just the company that fired or otherwise allegedly retaliated against them, but the individual person who did it, whether that's the corporate CEO or the frontline manager that carried out the retaliation, and it would ban the company from paying the damages or the legal fees for the individual managers, putting managers in a somewhat awkward position if told to do something that appears to be retaliation. It's, I think, a fascinating opportunity for a conversation about the issue of widespread retaliation and the issues with the NLRB process. Almost no one would expect that this bill would pass in Congress, but it is an interesting contrast both to the more mild reforms that have been discussed elsewhere and to the virulently anti-union and anti-labor bills that the House majority has discussed and in some cases passed since Republicans took over. So it's something that we will continue to follow. At this point, long-time 12-week listeners will know we sometimes bring honored guests to join the discussion here. This week we have Rich Yeselson, 
a DC-based writer covering labor. Rich worked in the labor movement as a researcher and strategist for 23 years. He is the author of a lightning rod piece in democracy called Fortress Unionism. He's also an avid Twitterer at at Yeselson, and we're very glad to welcome him to the podcast. So Rich, to start with, could you tell us some about the genesis of this article? What was the argument that you set out planning to make? Did that change in the process of writing it? Is there a particular conversation that you wanted to intervene in by writing this long read? Yeah, um, you know, it's, it's interesting because I came at this from the point of view of like really immersing myself and the reader in the history, in the, the first half of the piece, the Taft-Hartley piece, the Operation Dixie, the, the power of unions in the uh, late 1940s. I'm fascinated by that era. I'm always stunned that even, you know, so-called Educated people have barely, if at all, heard of Taft-Hartley, which, you know, by any, by any kind of standard that I can imagine, I, I would probably rank as the fifth or sixth most important domestic law passed in the 20th century, you know, right behind like Medicare and Social Security and, and uh, NLRA and probably Obamacare, and I've given, I could provide health insurance to 30 million people, but right up there. So I wanted to like convey that to readers, and I also wanted to convey that in particular to people in the labor movement who themselves may not you know, recall, because it's outside of the living memory of, of almost all of us, just what a powerhouse unions were back then, but also just how much opposition they had, too. The, the stronger the unions got, the stronger the opposition. You know, at the same time, as I was thinking about and then starting to do research, on the Taft-Hartley era, the, the late 1940s era, as a kind of a straight history piece, you know, I was aware of the fact that the constant question for, for unions over several decades now is, you know, what should unions do now? What's next? And, you know, I thought quite clearly that's linked to some of the limitations that Taft-Hartley had put in front of unions and that Taft-Hartley had shaped to a fairly significant degree, the current history. So in telling that history, you talk about the mass mobilization and, you know, industrial disruption, right, with the strikes and all sorts of other fun things in the 1930s that was necessary to secure the National Labor Relations Act. But you also argue that those strikes and all of that action led to the passage and, and the support for among the business community, the Taft-Hartley itself. So you sort of imply that labor should have compromised to avoid Taft-Hartley being as bad as it was. What kind of compromise would have been possible? And do you really think that any of those compromises would have actually placated that opposition? No, probably not. Um, yeah, I know I had a line in the essay about that. I think, however, essentially... Labor was in a bad spot. Presumably, you know, at the beginning of the year, meaning the year 1947, when Taft-Hartley was passed in June of that year, right. uh, Truman gave us his State of the Union address. And again, we can't imagine this stuff now, but 
you know, labor management relations was the top domestic issue. And he was dealing with the Cold War and all oh, that. the good old days. The Russians overseas. But when he got to domestic policy, labor was number one. Labor and management fighting, essentially. Yeah. And, you know, he proposed the commission and all this. And, you know, basically both the AFL and the CIO and the major affiliated union said, you know, no, you know, slave labor. I mean, I suppose it's conceivable they could have come up with something a little less draconian than what happened. Yeah. But essentially, the problem, if you want to put it that way, of labor's power was that it generated an even bigger pushback. Like, they had like a third of the workforce organized, incredibly powerful. Places like Alabama had 18% union density, which is about what Michigan has today. But the pushback was even bigger. Like everybody, pretty much every other significant elite institution opposed, you know, union power, or at least wanted to limit it in some way. And that's, I think, was the crux of the matter. It's kind of like, you know, kind of like in the old Marvel comics, you know, Hulk versus the Thing. You know, I mean, <laughs> the Thing was really big, but like Hulk was bigger. And then that's kind of what happened to labor. So you note, I think, correctly, I think this is one of the points that I think needs to be really emphasized from this piece, that Taft-Hartley, what it did was it bureaucratized labor. And so, of course, you make suggestions in this piece for where labor should go now. Um, how do you see your suggestions as, as working to undo that bureaucratization? Oh, that's a great question. And that, you know, really gets to the heart of the issue. Thomas Gagan, you know, which side are you on? Mm-hmm. I'm sure you guys read that at some point. It's a great uh, book. But, but if not, you know, uh, or your listeners, Gagan had like a great joke in there someplace to, in the book about... It was something like labor's, you know, not doing well and it's losing members. And so finally at the last Labor Day parade, it's just going to be the lawyers on the floats. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like the labor lawyers. And they're going to be like waving to whoever like feels like watching a Labor Day parade with no members, but, but all, law- all staff lawyers. And, you know, the bureaucratization is crucial. And it's not like a personal thing. The lawyers are doing... You know, obviously, they're good lawyers, bad lawyers, everything in between. But essentially, they're doing their, their fiduciary obligation. And the, the, the penalties for violation are when, when these, these organizations, unions, have, in fact, considerable assets, are, like, much greater than what it was, say, for the UAW in 1937 in Flint, Michigan, which it barely existed. It had been chartered the year before. I don't know. Maybe that 500 bucks in the bank. But... It was a, it, there was nothing to take being an injunction. But today, that bureaucratization speaks to the fact that unions are really in like a kind of a sweet spot of weakness. Because on one hand, they are large organizations. I mean, you know, people both on the business community and union people focus, oh, yes, unions declining. Yes, indeed. But like compared to like almost any other nonprofit, if not obviously the like Fortune 100 companies, you know, big unions, the major ones, are big organizations. They have hundreds of thousands, or some cases, you know, over a million members. You know, they have lots of staff. They have, like, real estate assets worth millions and millions of dollars. They have pension fund assets worth hundreds of millions of dollars. And that's a lot to risk. I mean, the UAW really didn't have anything to risk in '37, And that's why the lawyers are there. Basically to say, 
it's too much. You can't risk it. So the unions actually are pretty potent, or at least they have these assets, which are worth quite a lot of money and still a lot of members. They're weak, but they're not that weak. On the other hand, they're not strong enough to exert the kind of power, either politically, economically, or in civil society, that I outlined that they did in, in 1947 and 48 and 46. So that's the sweet spot of weakness. On one hand, they're not strong enough. On the other hand, they're too strong to risk much. Yeah. So if you, if you think about that Flint strike, there were a couple of injunctions against it. The first one was put down by one of the first like corporate campaign tactics, probably. Lee Pressman, you know, general, the general counsel, CIO, finds out that the local Michigan judge actually owns you know, a fair amount of General Motors stock, meaning the guy who issued the injunction. Yeah. So that's publicized. It basically completely undermines the injunction. I don't know if it was officially withdrawn or it was just kind of laughed at. Yeah. Um, and it was an incredibly smart move. Then there's a second injunction, a second judge, and the UAW and the strikers, to the point, just ignore it, the sit-down strikers, because Frank Murphy, the, maybe the greatest New Dealer of all the, the state governors at the time, was governor of Michigan, and he just wasn't going to enforce that. He wasn't going to send in the National Guard or the police to bust heads and possibly kill people at Flint, and they knew it, so they ignored it. Yeah. Like, in, in 1996... At the port of Los Angeles, you have estimates range from five to 8,000 workers like, who essentially organize themselves. They go on strike. Then the CWA comes in, brings in some expertise, some money. Um, you're stopping trucking at the, the two contiguous ports, Long Beach and Los, Los Angeles, with like bringing 40% of the imports to the United States. This is a huge thing. But there are injunctions then, too, that limit pickets. You know, they, they had pickets in front of the, the trucking terminals, hundreds of workers just completely stopping the trucks. The, the, the junction, I think, I'm trying to remember, said something like you had to be reduced to 10 pickets. Basically, the trucks keep going in. So what does the, the CA, uh, CWA do? Well, they do it any It's not their fault. I'm not saying, oh, the CWA should have been more militant. They do what any union today with millions of dollars in assets would do. They abide by the injunction. And that speaks to the level of, of bureaucratization that we have. I mean, there's all these things that unions have to abide by. And it's really hard for like an existing, quote unquote, mature labor institution to really, really promote uh, union militancy or worker militancy at the level that's usually required to create maximum growth. So you argue that even some of the savviest, most admired private sector organizing campaigns in recent decades, the Justice for Janitors campaign, for example, haven't really moved the needle in the way that would be needed to get labor growing. Why do you think that is? Well, let me first uh, clarify what I mean by move the needle. I mean, J for J, Justice for Janitors, is you know, really brilliant campaign to sort of figure out that, you know, you had to go after the big real estate owners and not the building service contractor companies was like an incredibly smart insight and a great success for like, you know, for the 50,000 or, or so janitors that have joined, it's changed their lives. It's changed their family's life. But that upside kind of speaks to the limits of campaigns. No, I'm not saying they didn't do anything. It probably would have been worse 
without the last 30 years of comprehensive campaigns. And, and comprehensive campaigns themselves, in their origins, were a response to the fact that unions no longer had that kind of militant rank-and-file power. So they had to come up with something else. So they came up with this, the air campaign, which, you know, they come up with all kinds of ways to, to sort of mess with companies, legal ways, by looking at the business model of the company. The trouble is that it's not how union growth has ever happened before in a massive way. So it's hard to imagine. It may be, maybe history will be made. But now we've had like 30, really 35 years since the late 70s, since Ray Rogers' first campaigns, I guess, of uh, comprehensive campaigns. And we don't have growth. We have a 40% decline, you know, just what, no matter what any given campaign might do. It is hard to move the needle that way. And the, the, the bottom line numbers show that. So, of course, the most controversial part of your piece was the argument that unions should wait for workers to sort of demand union representation. And, I mean, first, I think people want to know what that really means. What is What does it mean for the workers to be ready and to demand unionization? I mean, I would think that the popular identification with the Occupy movement shows that there's interest in this country right now in economic justice. And that polls consistently show that workers would join unions if they had the option, but they don't know how to do it, or their boss just makes it completely hellacious to even try. Yes. That's why it's so hard. There are two lines in the piece that I probably would have kept in, but I would have elaborated. Yeah. One is the weight, because I tend to think that that almost like blocked the synapses of people. I mean, it got people so either upset or people, you know, like genuinely like upset, not even angry, but like dis- disturbed that they didn't see that, you know, for better or for worse, good ideas, bad ideas, medium ideas. I had like four or five paragraphs above that saying, well, here's what we ought to do. Yeah. Um, and so, and there's plenty of work in what I outlined for people to do and actually plenty of organizing to do within that context. But the other part I probably would have changed, and it speaks to your question, yeah. and it links to the weight part, is the thing about how the, the working class today is mostly not interested. And the, the response I got to that was, as you just noted, Sarah, uh, the polls indicate that, right, you ask workers if they're interested in a union. I've talked to non-union workers, too. Talk to them, you know, Port of Long Beach or whatever. Are they interested? Yeah, I could be interested. Sure, I'm interested. And then, right, next point is, well, gee, there's so much resistance. And my point is there is, right, there's so much resistance. So you have to do, be more than just kind of answer a poll question and say you're interested. You have to be, and I'm not knocking anyone for doing this because this is such a big ask, but you have to want to risk what people did in 1886 and 1937 because, yes, the opposition is enormous, but it's no greater than the opposition of the car companies and, and the steel companies and the, and the electric companies, the rubber companies, in, in the 30s. I mean, arguably, it's less. I mean, people were just being killed regularly and badly beaten up in that earlier period and in the mines, too. I mean, here's kind of what I mean. Let me give you just an example. I'm taking this from 
unfortunately, because we we've eschewed the visual element here, <laughs> I don't get to, I don't get to hold up my really beaten up copy of Irving Bernstein's Turbulent Years, which I'm sure you guys know is you know probably the even now 45 years later like the standard history of just what the American working class and the union movement did in the 1930s. So Bernstein writes toward the beginning of chapter six, which tellingly is entitled Eruption, talking about not even 37, but 34, right? The 34 that led to the 35 of the Wagner Act, the National Labor Relations Act. And he quotes like this African-American tugboat captain during a strike in New York's harbor in the spring of 1934. Okay, so I'm, I'm quoting now. We're on duty 24 hours a day and receive a dollar a day for their work. In the offices of the regional labor board, the captain told his boss, and I quote from the captain, worker on strike, you've got to settle this strike. We've been hungry. I am hungry. And if I get any hungrier, I won't stop short of killing you. If you can afford a beautiful office and a good home, you can afford to pay your men enough so they won't have to go to garbage cans for their food. Close quote. And that's what I'm talking about. I mean, sort of abstractly, are you interested in a union? It's kind of like one level of knowledge about workers today. But it's not, if you don't settle this thing, I'm going to kill you. That's what people were doing then. That's what's really required. Like, in a way, I really, one of the goals of this article was to have union people think about, yeah, this is tough, we're losing membership, but I wanted them to think, this is even harder than we thought it was, and we thought it was incredibly hard. And I, I just think that piece of it kind of gets lost in the idea that you polled the workers. And no doubt, if you dig enough, you will find some of those workers who you polled, who would go to the lengths of that, that tugboat captain. But I don't think on balance... You know, that's out there. I mean, that's why that 96 Port of L.A. strike was so interesting, because so much of it was ground up, and it was at a key economic spot, which is another thing I pointed to. Like, GM Ford in the 30s, that was the core of the American industrial economy. You were stopping production. We don't, you don't do that with, you know, hotel, casino, housekeepers. Bless them who have an incredible union. You don't do that with nurses' aides. I mean, it doesn't stop the core of the economy. Janitors don't stop the core of the economy. Part of that is, again, it's a structural thing. So it makes it harder to get to that core. But, and that's also why I think that it's really important that the UAW keep trying to do what it's trying to do and organize these hybrid car companies uh, all over the, the South and in Ohio. But the the, the big thing is that there's stuff to do. And I think, you know, I do have kind of an outline of some ideas of what to do, but the wait part isn't like, well, you know, just might as well roll over and die. The wait part is to kind of understand that if you want to do like a, like a comprehensive kind of a campaign, you're not getting at the core problem. And in fact, you might be better off allocating all of those resources to having your, your local unions ready to fight or, or just organizing, which there's plenty to do, off of an area of strength like Unite Here is doing in the casinos. Like maybe, for example, I don't know if this is true or not, because, again, it's a big deal. But if you're the Teamsters, 
who's a multi-jurisdictional union. Maybe you think, well, we have this crown jewel of American labor, which is UPS, which is, you know, whatever it is, 175,000, 200,000 UPS workers making great wage, great benefits, great contracts, have a great relationship with the general public. Uh, everybody knows them. Everybody admires their work, incredibly respected. And we've got to protect and enhance them because there's a parallel non-union operation, FedEx, which is rapidly anti-union, as rapidly anti-union as any com company in America, as rapidly anti-union as Walmart, as rapidly anti-union as GM in 37. And so maybe we really just put every resource we have, including lots of UPS leave of absence workers, into you know organizing uh, FedEx. And we know it might take 20 years, like between 1919 and 1937-38, between like the losing steel strike of 19 and, and the winning SWAT campaigns of 1938. But that extends our strength, and there's a logic to that, rather than going into sectors that we actually don't have that all that much strength in. So to the resources question, which anyone who's worked in the labor movement knows does become a triage question. You argue for a focus in terms of organizing and winning collective bargaining on industries, companies, and cities that are already strongholds, already areas of strength. So to tease out what that would look like, what it is that you're proposing, what should be invested in, what should be abandoned, two unions that come to mind as examples. One is the United Steelworkers. The number of steelworkers in the United States total is not growing We've seen the steelworkers invest in alt-labor groups, various kinds of organizing that isn't demanding collective bargaining, whether it's Working America, which you talk about specifically, or the National College Players Association, which is organizing college athletes. And you talk about increasing the investment in alt-labor. At the same time, the steelworkers have been involved working with community groups, but towards collective bargaining in organizing car wash workers, and they have begun winning collective bargaining for car wash workers, not anyone's idea of a traditional steelworker jurisdiction. So one question would be, do, I mean, do you think that the steelworkers are making a mistake by moving into this car wash area? The other would be the situation of the UFCW, where, as everyone knows, the UFCW is very closely tied to and invested in the current organizing effort at Walmart. We saw a decade ago strikes that were largely lost by the UFCW at unionized supermarkets in Southern California, where labor and management both agreed the strikes were about the question of could those supermarkets that had a union bring their labor costs down to become more like Walmart. We see the pressure that Walmart exerts on its suppliers, on its competitors within the industry, as well as the way it sets an example for other companies. So is you do you talk, you unfavorably contrast the strikes that have taken place at Walmart with past eras of mass strikes. You note that after Black Friday we didn't see thousands of Walmart workers spontaneously walking off the job across the country. But is there a real alternative for the UFCW to backing this kind of effort? I mean, do you believe that that's a mistake? And so I'm curious what you make of what the steelworkers should be doing and what the UFCW should be doing in terms of their resources. Okay. Well, you know, I love the steelworkers. I did a lot of work for that, that union 15, 20 years ago. And, 
the Ravenswood campaign, other other fights, Bridgestone, Firestone. Um, it's a it's a great union in a, in a lot of ways. And you're right. You know, there are less steel workers, union, non-union, whatever, in the country than there are poultry workers. Uh, something like under 200,000, 150,000 steel workers, I guess. So that's not that's not the way they 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 have to go. I mean, they have a tough situation. I do think, just to take up the piece of your question that had to do with alt labor, which of course you you've written about and 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 have followed closely. Part of the reason to do alt labor, in fact, I would say most of the reason to do, it, in my view is because you're reaching out to, to people, all kinds of industrial economic sectors, who might be the workers who break the bounds of propriety in five years or ten years. And you're planting these seeds all over the country for something you can't predict. It's like predicting that the, the people in the Texas legislature last night would have just shouted down that vote. Like, you couldn't lawyer that up. The lawyers might have said, well, you know, it's some disturbance of the peace or whatever. And it wasn't lawyered up. It was a moment for a militant minority, a movement moment that sort of emerged organically from this filibuster of, of Wendy Davis's. And so you're thinking, well, how do you plan something that you can't plan? And the answer is you can't plan the action, but you can organize the kind of people who might someday break the bounds of propriety break the, you know, day-to-day sort of, okay, here's how we're going to do it, and we have to be out there for 30 minutes, and then the police are going to come and take us to jail for 45 minutes, and then we'll be let out. You have to figure out how to do that, and that's what at least the promise of alt labor does. So that's the that's the reason I really like alt labor. First, I wa- it wasn't, it was like, oh man, this is like, this is even less than the organizing we're doing now. I thought it was like, this is like, you know, like if we're dying now, this you know what's what's dying but worse. I don't know. I couldn't figure out. You know, you know. I remember thinking that when I when I actually first read your article. But then when I, the more I thought about it, I thought, wait, this is the way to connect to possibly the leaders of tomorrow, the people who are going to like break those boundaries of propriety and go beyond the sweet spot of weakness because the unions can't do it. The union, the, the existing unions can only do so much. They, they can't fight that, that injunction, limiting 200 pickets to 10. There's, they have too many assets on the line. So that's one part of it. As far as like the, the car washes, you know, my, I'm, I'm essentially agnostic about that. I mean, I would say that it has most of the, the sort of limitations of any comprehensive campaign work, but you can probably justify that campaign and maybe someday lightning strikes among those workers and it spreads to other urban workers because it's probably not that cost intensive given that there aren't, you know, that many. There are a lot of car washes, but obviously each car wash is only going to have, you know, whatever it is, six, eight, ten workers. I would just only say this isn't going to be the way to get to the big thing. And the big thing is the only thing that's going to save labor. Um, but this is okay to do in the meantime. About UFCW, this is, again, this is a trickier question. And just to, I know you're not saying this, but just to underscore this, 
it's no knock on today's workers. Today's situation is a lot different than what it was in 1886 or, or 1937 or 1934. This is not what, well, damn it, you know, they really had guts they would do it. I'm, my, my only point is just that that's the kind of courage, remarkable courage, when you think about it, that really is going to be required. But the, the trick here is if we were in that one of those moments where a surge was, was likely to happen, it would have spread. And that's why I don't even know if you remember this, Josh, but at the time of the Thanksgiving demonstrations and walkouts uh, with Walmart last year, I, I tweeted something to you and some others that I thought, well, it's probably the biggest thing that's happened since, well, probably justice for janitors, you know. Some people would say the farm workers. Uh, we'll have to see how it goes. And so it turned out it wasn't, it was a breakthrough, but Walmart can handle several hundred workers going out or firing a few people and getting some bad publicity from it or dealing with board charges. You know, they probably have a hundred lawyers on call who can, like, with a macro key to deal with board charges, you know, they just take one key on their, on their computers and they have an entire response file to the board, you know, and it's not that much different, I think, than the alt labor thing, except it's a giant company, which, which employs a lot of workers. But I think if you just almost think of it, like it's the same kind of thing. It's kind of an alt labor thing. They're going to make demands. They're going to walk out. Sometimes you're talking to the bravest of the brave, the toughest of the tough, the, the, the savviest of the savvy workers, the ones who are doing this, you know, way ahead of the rest of their um, colleagues and peers, you know, and you're staying in touch with them. And if you can stay in touch with them and work with them, yeah, right. Who knows? Lightning might strike. I would never forget one of your tweets, Rich. <laughs> I wonder, so I and other reporters who went to Wisconsin during or before the failed recall election against Scott Walker talk to people who supported Scott Walker who would say, well, these public sector workers, they have all these benefits that I don't have in my job. And there, it was very clear the way in which the tremendous decline in union density in the private sector has left public sector workers vulnerable. But we can see the same thing in the private sector. So in the Verizon strike, for example, CWA's attempt but failure to organize wireless workers left those wireline workers, the non-growing part of the company that used to be almost the whole company and remains union, very vulnerable. And so you had the company saying, well, why do these guys get something that the growing part of the company doesn't? That's an example within one company, but there are plenty of examples where you look at one group of workers and you see them both vulnerable economically, but also vulnerable politically and in the media and in terms of public perception because so many other workers do not have these benefits and do not have organizing rights. We also see the economy shifting, and the fast food industry, as you mentioned, along with retail, is responsible for a tremendous amount of the growth in the economy. And so if labor focuses on existing strongholds rather than on the areas of the economy that are growing the most in the areas that are non-union do you worry that that leaves the people who've still got that union contract not so much a fortress, but actually even more vulnerable because they become even more isolated? Well, I mean, it's a, you know, it's a good question. I mean, like, think about the CWA. I mean, to, to me, any, any, any workers within their jurisdictions, to me, counts as like 
extending a strength. CWA, of course, is like famous for, you know, a very successful bargain to organize program. And I just think they need to do as much of that as possible so that they do make every effort to pull in those particular workers that you talked about. Again, you know, I haven't come up with an Excel spreadsheet of like what constitutes extending from strength. If you did, but, we would post it on our website. <laughs> well, good. I'm glad you did because basically, I mean, it would actually be if one was going to be carry this out in a, in a, in a more serious like way as in terms of like actually imagining this to be a full-flung program to implement, it would be an interesting question to sort of see, okay, where are the areas of strength and how many workers are that? I think, uh, or, or, or part of it, those extended areas of strength, meaning not currently union, but within the sectors of unions which have significant density already. So obviously, you know, again, casino workers, hotel workers in major cities, like CWA telecommunication workers, non-big three auto workers. I mean, it kind of goes, you know, FedEx already, you know, that's a lot of workers right there. Like if you start sort of ginning these out and then you add in sort of like less um, intense in terms of expenditure and resources, but serious alt-labor program, which would could hit companies like, and effectively I think is hitting companies like, you know, McDonald's or, or Walmart and maybe someday Home Depot, um, you'd end up with a lot of workers in those nets. And because one of the biggest things you can do from building out from strength is you actually have workers who, you know, have the benefit of union contracts and they can be your best organizers of non-union workers in the same sector. And to say, this is, listen, I know I'm not much different than you except I have a union contract and it's a big, big difference for me. So finally, sort of, we started out talking about Taft-Hartley, and in recent years we've seen a ridiculous amount of anti-union bills being brought forth in, in places that labor has historically been really strong. In Wisconsin, they passed right to work in Michigan. I'm curious as to what you think that we should do when stuff like that comes down, because it really does seem like the right is emboldened to go after labor in its old strongholds, in the places where there is still density. Right. I mean, in fact, you know, when Right to Work in Michigan happened, I wrote a, a piece for the American Prospect and said that was worse than Wisconsin. It was a very good piece. We'll put a link at the website. But yeah, I think, like, the defensive fights are actually, I mean, there's a kind of a sad irony in this, but there's also a kind of real expertise that's been gained. They're the best thing that unions do, right? I mean, beat back the Ohio right-to-work effort. That was a smashing victory. Beat back the various ballot initiatives over several years, several different, different kinds, different tries in California. And again, with, you know, California, we think of as a big union state. It is about 18% density. Ohio, I think, is about 11 or 12 now. Maybe I don't know. No higher than 14, I know that. Yeah. That's not really that much. Yeah. But we've gotten good at this. Um, we've gotten good at, 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 you know, doing the politics of it, doing the door-to-door, explaining why, um, even if people may be 
opposed or just agnostic or only vaguely interested in increasing union density and in, in increasing the number of workers in unions. They're not necessarily, and this is just you know what the political scientists call status quo bias, but we can use use status quo bias to our advantage. They're not, they don't want to roll things back. They don't, you know, the the right wing, they really are, they're Bolsheviks, right? It's a minoritarian revolutionary ideology. I mean, they're mirror images of Bolsheviks, allowing we haven't had anything like a Russian revolution. So I'm not, you know get the calls. Are you saying we're, you know, we're out in the street shooting people? No. But the logic of being a minority movement that's going to, like, going to impose its, its vision of the world is not an attractive one to most people. It's just that most people aren't as engaged in politics as the right wing or, or frankly, people like us. Most people just aren't that engaged in politics one way or the other at all. So we have this expertise where we can get a lot of middle-of-the-road people, as certainly as well as our own membership, ginned up to push back. So I think we can win in Michigan. In fact, I think we probably will. And, you know, the tricky thing is going to be with the redistricting, like taking back the legislature in the state. But I think ultimately we'll, we'll be able to, to push back and, and, and win there. And I just think, you know, in answer to your question, what should we do? I mean, those are just, you know, that's the classic, right? before you do anything else, like the house is on fire. So you got to, you know, we should just try our best to put out the fire. Unfortunately, we're quite competent at that. I think that the, the unfortunate thing in Michigan was the initial overreach. You know, th- th- and this is something, meaning trying to get the, uh, you know, the constitutional enactment of the right to unionize. The irony is that when unions are really strong, those rare but very real moments, when Density is increasing by leaps and bounds, like the phone's ringing off the hook at the local at the local union. Like people are on the streets. It's the biggest story in the national media. Like that's exactly when unions have so much power in civil society that they don't even need the bill. The bill just ratifies what already exists, which is union power. The Wagner Act probably had it did have a big influence on SWAT. Because SWAT was really a John L. Lewis mine workers top-down thing, organizing steel workers. And that did inspire workers to sign up. That, oh, wow, they passed this bill. But mostly, the militancy led to the bill. It's not like the bill led to the militancy. Even after the Wagner Act was passed, most workers were just being organized by like 100 guys jamming themselves into, into the boss's office and saying, we want a union. They weren't using the board. They were doing it the old-fashioned way. They had power. And they're like, the, the boss would say, oh, okay, yeah, okay. You got your union, fellas. Uh, could you please get out of here? I'm, you know, I'm going to piss in my pants. So you don't need the bill when you're at your most powerful. But the problem is when you need the bill, like, wow, we really needed card check, right, or anything. Like we needed like just labor law reform in 1978 with Carter and the Democrats. By then we were too weak to get it. Just missed yeah, I mean, I could almost write a whole other article about that, about just like the ironies of union civil society power versus like seeking legislation. So that was the kind of thing, like you think about Michigan and that and that amendment, right? Michigan probably topped out, you know, obviously the UAW being, being a lot of it, but not all of it, probably topped out like union density, maybe 45, 50 percent. 
like in, I don't know, maybe early 1960s. This is like just ballpark, you know. Um, maybe maybe an academic could really pinpoint that down. Okay, so now it's down to 18. But think of that, right? 45%? Like, you you know, you don't quite own the state, and, and the UAW used to lose a lot of elections, too, locally. But you are one of the two powerhouses in the state. It's you, the union, and you are, and the Democratic Party in the, in this, in the state is just a wholly owned subsidiary of the UAW. So they're not even a powerhouse. They're just, the UAW owns the Democratic Party. And everybody who hates you is on the other side. That's the other powerhouse, right? So in 1960, Walter Ruther didn't have to say, gee, you know, let's just run a, run a ballot initiative to, like, make it, you know, a right of people in the state of Michigan to collectively bargain. I mean, like, who cares? I mean, they, they had the right. I mean, they had the right because they expressed it in their power at the workplace and on the streets and in, and in the legislature. So nobody would have, it would have won in 1960, right? It would have carried easily. But if you ask for that in like whatever, 2012 or something, when you're at 18%, yeah, you could use it then. It would help. It would, it would probably inspire some people to organize. It would, it would be a shot in the arm for the existing organized workforce. But you can't get it then. You're too weak. So, you know, you don't go for that when you're weak. It's not going to, you know, it's like married people think who are having a crappy marriage and think like, oh, you know, we'll have a kid. That'll make us feel better. No, that'll just make it worse. Like, you know, you don't, you know, if your marriage sucks, really, it's not a good idea to have a child too. It's stressful to have a child and when you're not working in combination to out of your own devotion to each other, to parent. So, you know, it wasn't the right play to do that in 2012. Uh, and when it was the right play in 1960, they didn't have to. So, so there you go. That piece again is Fortress Unionism in Democracy Journal. If you would like to see the visual aids or spreadsheets that Rich mentioned, perhaps consider making a donation to Descent Magazine, which hosts this podcast. This is the moment in our podcast where we say, "Arg! I wish I had written that. Sarah, if you had had a child which had ruined your already terrible marriage, and all that you had to leave to that child that you may have resented was a simmering resentment about a piece of journalism or opinion that someone else had written, what would that piece be? (laughs) I have to giggle at Josh's uh, little intros here sometimes. I do not, for the record, have a bad marriage or any marriage. Um, Just just referencing the interview. (laughs) Um, So this week... Or actually last week, but after we had recorded the podcast, I'm a friend of both of ours and the show, Seth, um, Seth Fried Wessler, had a wonderful piece on wage theft. You may remember wage theft from our recent discussion here on Belabored um, up at Color Lines. And he's specifically talking about wage theft among fast food workers. Um, did a really good job interviewing some specific fast food workers who had experienced wage theft, sort of looking at the way that the franchise model among fast food restaurants really enables this process. Um, 
asking the question of who may be ultimately responsible for this, um, whether corporations like Domino's and McDonald's and Burger King may have any responsibility for wage theft that's being carried out by franchises under their name. Seth is an excellent reporter. Color Lines is an excellent media outlet. Um, they focus on the news of the day through a racial justice lens. You should all be reading them. Um, they will almost guarantee to have an angle on something you had not thought of before. Um, so, yes, in general, I wish I had written this piece. There are many, many pieces that I wish I had written up at Color Lines, several of them also by Seth. Another friend of the podcast, Dan Denver of Philadelphia City Paper, broke an important story last week in a piece he called Secret Poll, Corbett Should Exploit Philly School Crisis, Attack Teachers Union for Political Gain. This continues on stories that we've talked about several times on the podcast. Dan got a hold of a poll which was funded by pro-charterization, pro-quote-unquote school reform groups designed to urge Pennsylvania's governor to deal with his very poor polling on education by scapegoating the teachers union. Dan has some fascinating insights into both the insights in the poll and the insights about the poll, the politics of its creation, this attempt to force some kind of ultimatum where statewide funding, as we so often see around the country, where funding is tied to forcing unions to make concessions in areas like job security that don't directly cost taxpayers money. And he notes interesting findings that, for example, how much people in the state of Pennsylvania support the Philadelphia Teachers Union depends in part on whether you use the word Philadelphia and whether you use the word union in describing it. It's a must read up at City Paper. That brings us to the end of our dozenth episode. Please suggest topics you'd like us to tackle in our intermittent explainer segment. Suggest stories you'd like us to cover. Give us some feedback. Share your thoughts on the sweet spot of weakness. All at the hashtag belabored. And many thanks to our wonderful producer, Natasha Lewis. And to Descent Magazine, as always, for hosting us. We will be back next week. This life is hard, so hard I must go. Hey, twin to five, hell no, we can't go. Cause society has enslaved me, and it's crazy. Cause daily, it gets hard.